today in Pen Currents, we're going to keep up with the summer theme and do a quick review of the initial approach to distal forearm fractures. If you spend any time in the PZD, you know that forearm pain after some sort of trauma, usually a fall, is a very common complaint throughout the year, but even more so when everyone is outside on those dreaded monkey bars. We'll be briefly reviewing the important factors in evaluation and management of this common injury. Distal forearm fractures represent up to a quarter of every single pediatric fracture seen, so it's certainly something we need to be very familiar with. And here's some quick anatomy to start off. The radius and ulna are connected by an interosseous membrane, as well as at articulations at the elbow and the wrist. At the distal radial ulnar joint, there's a structure known as the triangular fibrocartilage complex. And that name is not important, but the structure itself is, because these connections are why if one bone in the forearm is injured, the other commonly is as well. So if you have a patient where there's evidence of fracture of only one bone, you gotta be very diligent about examining the surrounding joints to ensure that there's no associated injury. Now you have a child in front of you that just fell off those darn monkey bars or tripped over their own feet and fell onto an outstretched hand. This mechanism is the most commonly seen in distal forearm fractures and one that I'm sure you've encountered before. Wrist guards have been shown to decrease the incidence of fracture after falls in snowboarders by more than 70% and are recommended with inline skating as well. But back to our patient who wasn't so fortunate to be wearing a wrist guard. Initially, it's most important to assess a couple of things. The neurovascular status and the possibility for an open wound. If an open fracture does exist, assessing tetanus status and initiating IV antibiotics, usually with meds like Ansef or Cefazolin, should accompany your management. Vascular status should be assessed by palpating the radial pulse and perfusion distally in the hand. Vascular compromise is an emergency and requires immediate orthopedic consultation, so don't wait on your imaging to get those guys involved. Now, determining the neurological status can be difficult, especially in a scared young child with multiple strangers hovering over them. The goal is to assess motor sensation and sensation function of the three main nerves in the upper extremity. You remember those, right? The median, ulnar, and radial nerves. And you want to do this with as little extremity movement as possible. This is important because nerve deficits have been reported in up to 8% of kids with deformed distal forearm fractures, and especially in the median nerve. So how do you quickly knock out a motor sensory exam in this case? Well, sensation is quick and easy. Just see if they can sense light touch to the dorsum of the thumb web space. That's for the radial nerve. Anywhere on the pinky finger for the ulnar nerve, and either the palmar aspect or tip of the index finger for the median nerve. So that's dorsum of the thumb web space and tips of the index and pinky fingers for your sensation exam. Now asking these injured kids to move their fingers to test their motor function can be more challenging, and especially in those who are either apprehensive or just in pain. You may have an easier time with this exam after some pain meds have been given. So think of 0.1 mg per kg of morphine IV or intranasal fentanyl at a dose of 1 to 2 mics per kilo with a max of 100 mics. Now back to our exam. A good OK sign lets you know that the median nerve is intact. Be sure to look for good flexion at the thumb IP joint and the DIP of the index finger. If those are kept straight, you don't get an OK sign, you get more of a pinch. And this does not display median nerve function. Alright, technically it's anterior interosseous nerve, a branch of the median, but who's keeping track? A thumbs up tells you the radial nerve is intact. And to test the ulnar nerve, have the child spread their fingers against resistance. That tests those interossei muscles. So the motor is thumbs up, okay, and the finger spread. Now your exam is done. Go ahead and throw a quick splint on the arm. And that can be simply a volar plate at this time. That'll help the patient's pain by reducing movement of the extremity 
and can be done with the extremity as is. In other words, no reduction attempt now, just splint it in the position of comfort. Now AP and lateral x-rays of the forearm should be obtained with the need for dedicated wrist and elbow x-rays are dependent on your exam and concern for injury to these areas. In smaller children, sufficient views of the wrist can often be obtained on the forearm films. In one report, 5% of supracondylar fractures had associated forearm fractures on that side. So if you notice that forearm fracture first, make sure that the elbow is okay. Having the distal humerus on your films is helpful, but dedicated elbow x-rays may be needed. So now you have your results on the x-rays, what are you potentially seeing? So we'll go through the few different uh, most common x-ray types that, or fracture types that we see. So first there's the buccal fracture, it's also called a torus fracture. Now that's seen at the distal metaphysis where bone is most porous, and it's literally a buckling of the cortex due to compression failure. The word torus has Latin origins, it means swelling or protuberance, and you get this loss of that smooth contour of the, co of the cortex noted when you look at the x-ray. You get a little kind of pouch out or bump out. These injuries can be splinted with either a volar splint or sugar tong, and the child can follow up with their pediatrician if they want, or orthopedics. It's a very common and very stable fracture, with complications being rare. Now, a green stick fracture is where one side of the bone, the tension side, displays a complete fracture, and the opposite side has a bowing or a buckling. Now, these are important in that they require more prolonged immobilization, and they're higher rates of refracture. If angulation is present, you should discuss things with orthopedics regarding the need for reduction, as the degree of acceptable angulation is dependent on the child's age. So complete fractures travel through the distal metaphysis and involve both cortices. They may or may not have associated displacement or angulation. And because of rapid bone growth and an abundant blood supply in the distal forearm, children can tolerate some degree of displacement and or angulation pretty well with great ability to remodel and heal at these sites and without long-term complications. That remodeling ab ability is greatest at younger ages and the closer that a fracture occurs to the growth plate. Sometimes up to 15 to 20 degrees of displacement can be successfully remodeled in kids less than 10 years of age with less ac acceptable degrees of displacement in older populations. Displacement is determined by the lateral x-ray and is described based on the distal fracture fragment. So you can attempt to kind of measure that yourself before you give ortho a call. If there's any concern that de the degree of displacement may require reduction, that should prompt an orthopedic consult. Now complete fractures, whether requiring reduction or not, should be placed in a sugar tongue splint for immobilization and referred to orthopedics for follow-up in one week. Well that's the rough and dirty of the initial assessment and management of distal forearm fractures in children. Hope you liked the episode. Now take a listen to our other episodes on iTunes and at our website at pemcincinnati.com slash podcast. Keep checking in for the latest updates.